Good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Morning as we continue our walk through the creation week here in Genesis chapter 1, we'll be looking at the sixth day of creation together this morning as we look at verses 23 through 31 together. Let's begin our time by reading our passage, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are going to begin looking at the sixth day of creation. We won't finish the sixth day until next week, but this week we are going to work our begin working our way through the sixth day of creation here by looking at verses, mainly verses 24 through 28, focusing the majority of our time on verses 26 through 28 and the image of God. We're going to seek to do so this morning in two points. Our first point is kinds where we're going to look at verses 24 and 25. And our second point this morning, image, where we will look at verses 26 to 28. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer together, asking for his help in seeking to do this before we begin looking at our passage today. Let's pray.
Our Father, who is in heaven, we come to you now as your people, asking that you would do all the things that we just sang, that you would hold us fast, that you would rule over us, that you would subdue us to yourself by your word, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would cause us to live in this world as your image bears with an eye always on the horizon to the to the world to come. Lord Jesus, we ask that as our King, interceding for us right now, we ask that you would rule over us now with your word and by your spirit, that you would minister to us. That in unseen ways, you would help us to obey that which you have required of us. We thank you that you do not require us as a good and gracious king to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but that you have given us your spirit to renew the inner man day by day. You have given us a new heart and new desires as your people to love you, to obey all that you command of us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness to us. We ask that you would help us this morning. We ask these things not only for ourselves, but our sister and churches, our sister churches, our brothers and sisters who gather in many different places this morning. Father, we specifically lift up to you Grace Baptist Church in Dewey, Oklahoma, and Buffalo Baptist Church here in West Jefferson. Oh, Father, help our brothers and sisters. Help them to be pleasing to you. Help their churches to be embassies of heaven, lights, lighthouses for your gospel in this world. Father, we ask that in your kindness as we ask and hope for ourselves that you would bring unbelievers among them and that in doing so, you would subdue them to yourself through the preaching of your gospel and granting them the gifts of repentance and faith. Well, Father, increase their number, not just for their eternal good, not for their influence in this world, but that your great name would be praised and, it's in, and the praise would be increased and their voices would grow louder and their labors in this world would be multiplied. Father, do this work among our sister churches. And Father, for our persecuted brethren in the world, specifically in Afghanistan this morning, we ask that you would continue to give them your sustaining grace, that you would cause them to persevere to the end, 
Father, that you would give them the grace that they need to count it a joy, to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of our King. Father, we ask that you would prepare our own hearts to be willing to do so in our own land. Before our brothers and sisters whose lives and families and jobs and livelihoods are at risk now, we ask that you would be a mighty fortress for them. That you would spare their lives, not just for the sake of their lives, but for the advancement of your gospel in their villages and in their cities and in their country. And that Afghanistan would become a bright lighthouse for your gospel and that Afghanistan, of all places, in what seems impossible for us, God, we know that it is not with you that they would be a country known for sending out missionaries to other places in the world that are considered dark. Well, Father, do this work among our brethren this morning, we pray. Well, Father, as we turn our attention now to your word that you have, in your kind providences, gathered us together to hear this morning, help us to glean from it, help us all to grow in our knowledge of your Son, cause that, as you have promised, that it does to increase our faith, which increases our dependence and our obedience Father, do these things among us, and we ask for these things in our King, your Son's name. Amen. Responsibility is inescapable. We may all have different things that we are responsible for or different areas of our lives that we have different responsibilities in or even different degrees in all those different areas to which we are responsible. But the fact of having responsibility is inescapable. Even children, young children, and teenagers have responsibilities even though we commonly hear people say that they wish they could return to those good old days of being a kid or a teenager when they didn't have any responsibilities, the fact is that though they were different at that time, even even children have responsibilities. Children, for instance, have the responsibility of honoring their parents, of obeying their parents. This is a duty given to them by their Creator, We are told in the scriptures concerning the duties of children that even a child is known by their actions, whether their conduct is pure and right. But regardless of age, regardless of how many schemes and devices people may come up with in order to escape their responsibilities or their duties, we as followers of Christ know that no man, woman, or child will in the end escape being held responsible on the last day. And this knowledge 
about responsibility, this deep-seated conviction of being held accountable used to be widely understood in our culture. For instance, hear this story. On May 19th in 1780 in Hartford, Connecticut, while the State House of Representatives was in session on what seemed to be an ordinary day, around noon, the skies began to turn gray. And by mid-afternoon, the skies had become so unusually black and darkened that many believed that the judgment day had come and that the return of Christ was imminent. So striking was the sentiment that men were falling on their knees and begging for pardon before the end came because they knew that if Christ was here, that they were about to be held responsible. Some of the representatives in the House asked for the immediate adjournment of their session, but the Speaker of the House, a man named Colonel Davenport, is reported to have stood up and silenced the clamoring of the House with these words. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. Well, brothers and sisters, though we will speak of many different things this morning as we begin looking at the sixth day of creation, the fact that we have been made in the image of God and the fact that we have been given dominion over the earth and over everything in it, a question that will be constantly lingering in the background is a question of responsibility. What are our responsibilities as God's image bearers? And so as we work our way through our passage this morning, beloved, I hope you will consider how these things apply to the responsibilities that you have been given as God's image bearers, not just in this creation, in this world, but your responsibilities as holding the image of a new creation. Let's begin by looking at our first point this morning, kinds, as we look at verses 24 and 25 together. As we begin to look at our passage this morning, the sixth day of creation, let's take a moment again to appreciate the activity of our God here in creation. In the eight verses of the passage we read together today, God's activities of speaking, making, seeing, blessing, and giving are mentioned 13 times. The unmistakable note that Moses is playing for the people of Israel is that their God is the God of the heavens and the earth. Their God is the God of the sea and all that is in them. Their God alone blesses and creates. Their God alone forms and gives and fills with meaning and purpose. With this constant repetition of God's activities here in our passage 13 times, and in the larger chapter of Genesis chapter 1, a total of 38 times, the constant striking of this note must have had the effect of imprinting on the minds 
of the people of Israel when they heard this, that there were no other gods besides the one that had delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. As we look at verses 24 and 25, the way they are put together in our passage is that in verse 24, you have the statement of the fact, and God said, and it was so. And in verse 25, what you have is a repetition and description of that fact, and God said, and it was so. That becomes in verse 25, and God made, and God saw that it was good. So this is how verses 24 and 25 are structured. Now let's look at the content. Just as the earth brought forth vegetation on day three, back in verse 11, here in verses 24 and 25, God commands it to bring forth living creatures. And just like day three, where the earth brought forth vegetation according to their kinds, again, the earth is commanded here on day six to bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And we see here, in verse 24, that at the beginning of day 6, that God makes from the earth livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. Now the question may come, what accounts for these distinctions, these three different categories of living creatures? And while we cannot be 100% certain, I would like to suggest that perhaps the distinction that we see here is between those animals, those creatures that can be domesticated versus those that can't. The domesticated or tameable animals of livestock and the undomesticated animals of creeping things or great beasts of the earth. I would also suggest that if you take the time sometime to look in Leviticus chapter 11 at the list of clean and unclean animals, it seems to me that perhaps here in Genesis 1, Here in the beginning, we have the seed form of what will eventually grow into those distinctions between clean and unclean that become prescribed and commanded of the people of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. Now, having looked at the structure and content of this first part of the sixth day of creation here in verses 24 and 25, I want to take a moment to point out an important and repeated aspect of these two verses and make an application to us from them. It's important to note here that these distinctions in the realm of plants and animals that were according to their kinds that we saw on day 3 in verses 11 through 13, and we see it here again on day 6. What I want to point out before we begin talking about the image of God in our second point today, is that this distinction of things being according to their kinds finds no parallel in the creation of mankind. A discussion of kinds is conspicuously absent from verses 26 to 28. Here in the beginning at creation and before the fall of mankind, into sin and misery, there are no such things as kinds of image bearers that must stick to their own kinds. They can't be fruitful or multiply with other kinds. Now, if you'll remember last week, I used this phrase, according to their kinds, to speak of the created distinctions between men and women, and obviously these are a kind of distinction in image bearers. God created men 
and he created women. And though we both share in the image of God equally, as we will speak in a few minutes, we are not the same. There are God-given differences in role and function between males and females. But I want to make a point about kinds here this morning because this phrase, though it can be used to make distinctions, it has often been abused and perverted. The point I want to make this morning when speaking about kinds is that after the fall of mankind into sin and misery, the only limitation that God puts on man in relation to being fruitful and multiplying in kind is that between believers and unbelievers. One is of the first Adam, the man of flesh, while the other is of the second Adam, the man of heaven. Those who are of the new creation cannot and must not enter into a marriage with an unbeliever because one is spiritually dead in darkness, slaves to sin and Satan, while the other is spiritually alive, light, having been born of the Spirit and are slaves to Christ and to his righteousness. And my point in highlighting this detail of creation here in the beginning is to take a moment to say here in this church, in this embassy of the new heavens and earth, that that old racist trope of stick to your own kind is an affront. It is an attack on the image of God. Beloved, the only limitation that God has given to the marriage of a man and a woman is not based on what the color of someone's skin is, but rather brothers and sisters... As citizens of Christ's kingdom, we marry in this world, we are given in marriage in this world freely, freely to and freely with any tribe, any tongue, any nation, only based not on what the color of the skin is, but what the condition of the heart is. In a manner of speaking, you could say that the idea of sticking to your own kind is literally for the birds and the plants, and the sea creatures, and the creatures of the earth. Let's move on to our second point this morning in the focus of our time together as we look at verses 26 to 28 in the image of God. As we begin to look at the image of God together, we can see that in a way parallel to that of verses 24 and 25, verse 26 states the fact of mankind being made in God's image, God giving mankind dominion and authority, while verses 27 to 30 give us an expanded description of the acting out of this fact from verse 26. However, we not only see the similarity between the creation of the living creatures and mankind, but verse 27 highlights the difference. Verse 27 shows the uniqueness of mankind as the pinnacle of God's creation, and it does so by forming a poem about God's actions here in verse 27. Now, it's easier to see this poem in some Bibles than others. Perhaps you can see in your Bible that verse 27 is formatted a little differently. Maybe it's indented more and looks more like the Psalms or the Proverbs and the rest of Genesis chapter 1, but regardless of how your particular Bible is formatted, this poem about the image of God 
here in verse 27 consists of three lines. The first two lines are the same, only the order in which they're said is reversed. You can see it in the first line. It says, so God created man in his own image. And then the created and image elements get reversed in the next line. In the image of God, he created him. And finally, the last line of the poem explains the first two by saying, male and female, he created them. And so this little three-line poem, God highlights and emphasizes the fact that mankind made in his image is special. And this isn't just an idea that's floating out there somewhere that we need to grasp but can't quite get a hold on. But the fact of man being made in God's image and man being special, God has taken this and woven it into the very fabric of creation such that what we see happening in our day with mankind being thought of as just another animal, not special at all, just stardust that happens to be here, just the end result, not of special creation, but random, undirected mutations and natural selection, this abandonment of mankind being made in the image of God has consequences. This is suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. It is why murder happens. It is why abortion happens. It is why people think that men can get pregnant because if we are not made in God's image, if he has not ordered us, If he has not put limitations on us, then the only order, the only limitations that we have, the only value that we have is that which we give to ourselves. And if we are not made male and female by our Creator, if that has not been imposed upon us by our God, then who's to say? Who's to say that I can't just kill another bag of stardust? Who's to say that I can't end the life of that unborn clump of cells, that clump of stardust growing in the womb? Who's to say that I'm not a woman? Who's to say if God is not our creator and he has not imposed this order onto creation? You see, beloved... Christianity is not just a hypothesis to be judged. Christianity is reality. And because God is the creator of all that is, you cannot escape the created order. It is impossible. Men and women have found ways to rage and plot against it since they were sent out east of Eden, but because Christianity is reality, it has always been and will always be the case that those who strive against God, those who strive against His law, those who strive against His order, who strive against His anointed one, will in the end always fall into the category of professing to be wise, they became fools. Now that may take months 
It may take generations. It may take decades. But in the end, it will always be true that when you strive against the created order that God has imposed, that you will become a fool. Well, as we continue thinking about the image of God here, I think the first question that probably comes into most, people, most people's minds when they read a passage, this passage and think about it is, what does it mean to be made in God's image? And I want to answer that question with three couplets or three pairs of words. And I don't want you to think about these as completely distinct and separated and hermetically sealed off from one another because they are interwoven together. But I use the three pairs together and going to talk about them distinctively uh, just because it's easier for us to understand that way. The first is that we are made in God's image physically and spiritually. Our second couplet is that we are made in the image of God in our dominion and our work. And the third is that we are the image of God in our unity and in our diversity. So let's begin with that first couplet. We are made in the image of God physically and spiritually. Most simply, when we think about the image of God, we should think about what an image is. We all know this. An image is a physical representation of something. And so when God, who is a spirit and does not have a body like man, when God made man in his image, he made a physical representation of himself to put in his temple that he had made. However, we are not statues, so we cannot think of the image of God merely in physical terms, but we are also God's image in non-physical ways and spiritual ways as well. The way the Westminster and Baptist Catechisms put it is that mankind was made in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness being non-physical things that God endowed his image bearers with when he created us. And so when we think about being made in God's image, we should think both physically and spiritually. We are physical representations of our creator who is spirit. But the fact is, we are not statues or blocks of woods or meat and bones all the way down, chemical reactions. God has made us his image, body and soul. And so we image him physically and spiritually. Our second couplet that we're going to consider briefly is that we are made in the image of God. We image God in our dominion that we can see in our passage that he has given us and in our work. You see in verse 26 that the first thing God gives those gives to those made in his image his dominion and authority over everything that God has made on the earth. So, and so mankind made in the image of God, we image in both our authority and in our dominion. And this authority and dominion that has been given to us by our creator are the stage, the platform upon which we perform the work that he has given us in the world. Just as God worked, Six days, 
and rested on the seventh, so too we will see in a couple of weeks that he has given mankind the work of filling the earth, subduing the earth for six days, and then resting, imaging God by resting on the seventh. And so, beloved, we are to image God in this way, this example that he has given us of laboring six and resting one. And so we are to physically exercise our dominion and our authority by filling the earth and working with a benevolent knowledge, righteousness, and holiness as we do so. All for the glory of God and the good of his creation. All right, so we image God physically, spiritually. We image God in our dominion and our work in our last couplet that helps us understand the image of God is that we image him in our unity as well as in our diversity. Or you could say that we image him in our equality as well as in our distinction. We can see in verse 27 that when God put his image here on earth that he did not intend to communicate that only Adam was his image but rather one of the very first statements that God makes about his image is that he made it male and female. Brothers and sisters, men and women share equally in being made the image of God. Men and women share equally in value, in dignity, in worth. Men and women share equally in commanding the respect of their fellow image bearers. And this egalitarian view of men and women in the image of God sharing equally in dominion and worth and labor in no way negates or contradicts the distinctions between the roles that our Creator gives to men and women with male headship and leadership and the female as helper and her followership. And we'll be talking about this a lot more when we get into chapter 2 of Genesis, but as we think about the image of God here on the sixth day of creation, we must see that God has joined these things together, and we should not seek to separate them. It's not as though men are somehow superior images of God than women, Though there have been times and periods of history in the church where that was taught and foisted and people thought that way that men were superior images of God than women, it's also true that the converse is also not true. Women do not image God better than men. And honestly, beloved, in our day, it is commonplace in the church Though we won't say it out loud, we think it in our minds that women are better image bearers than men. One way that this has been pointed out is that typically on Mother's Day in most churches, we praise our mothers and we give them flowers and we speak of their virtues and all the wonderful things that our mothers do for us and all that is well and good and true. But on the other hand, on Father's Day, Most men in the church experience receiving a lecture 
about how they should be better husbands and better fathers. And in that way, very subtly, in our day, the temptation is to think that women image God in a superior way than men. Beloved, we need not give into this imbalance that is found in many churches today, and we need not give into the imbalance that was found in many churches in the past. No, beloved, we are united in our being made in God's image. Our God has inseparably joined men and women together. We image him together. We image him and we multiply and we fill the earth together. We exercise dominion together. And our God, in the wisdom of the counsel of his will, has done so by creating us in such a way that we complement one another. And so men and women have always needed each other. And again, it's not that way just because. God put the necessity of men for women and of women for men into the very fabric of creation such that without each other, it's more than obvious that nobody would have ever been able to fill the earth. It would have never been possible for the mandate that God gives to Adam and Eve in the garden to be fulfilled if he didn't create them in such a way that they needed one another as they both imaged God and exercised dominion on the earth. But after hearing these things about the image of God, honestly, we should not be surprised that these truths have been abused and perverted Throughout the history of mankind, when men and women have found ways to abuse and oppress other men and women, this should not surprise us because of what we know is coming in chapter 3 in a few months. We know that Adam and Eve will sin, mankind will fall at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we know that the physical image of God will suffer in the fall because the wages of sin is death. And so the physical image of God will die in all of us. We know that the spiritual image of God will suffer at the fall, having, after sinning, being enslaved to death and sin, dead to anything spiritually good. And we know that the dominion and work given to the image of God will suffer after the fall. And now our creation that we've been given charge to subdue, we will rebel against our dominion and our work. Instead of being fruitful, we'll be toil. And we also know that our unity and our diversity will suffer in the fall as men and women in different ways will seek to dominate the other instead of working together in a harmonious display of unity and diversity to benevolently govern the earth and everything on it. But the image of God, though marred, was not destroyed or lost in the fall of mankind into sin and misery. We will see this fact in a few months when we get to Genesis chapter 5, 
For there, verses 1 through 3, speak of Adam being made in God's image and likeness, and then goes on to say that Adam had a son in his image and likeness, showing that the image of God was not lost in the fall, though it was defaced and marred to the degree that now it needed to be restored by a new, perfect image-bearer. It needed to be redeemed. And so as we're thinking about this, I want to take a moment to speak directly to our unbelieving friends among us, whether young or old. I pray that you will hear these things and know the reality that you are valuable. You do have dignity and worth. Not because you're special or you've built yourself up into something really special or unique among men and women, but you were valuable from your conception because you were made in the image of your Creator. And as you make your way through this world, as you look around and see all the pain and the sorrow and the evil surrounding you in this world, I pray that you will hear these things today and understand why they are so. You see, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning that when God created mankind here on the sixth day of creation and gave him dominion and a job to do, God also gave them a law, a rule of living, a way in which they had to follow and order and live out their lives. But just as we just talked about, Adam and Eve failed. And we all failed in them, and we have all failed to obey God, not just in what they did, but we, what we do ourselves. And God has promised to punish and give justice to everyone who has not lived the perfect life that he has created us to live. So unbelieving friends among us, hear me this morning and heed the warning today. All the bad things that you see happening in the world, all the death, all the pain that you see, these things are just a shadow of the judgment that is coming. Look at the death and the pain and the destruction in the world and feel that sense of outrage that bubbles up within us when we see the abuses in the world and know that just as you desire to see justice done in the world, your Creator will see to it that in the end, justice is exactly what will be done. But dear unbelieving friend, this is bad news for you because you are a source of that injustice in the world. You have broken your Creator's law. You have sinned against Him. And you cannot escape His righteous judgment and justice, though you may escape it from men in this world. And so hear the, hear the bad news of that. Feel the weight of that, the burden of that. And I pray that God, by His Spirit, will enlighten your mind to that burden so that you will be able to now hear the good news. 
that though mankind has fallen, though you have sinned, you have sullied the image of God, God sent his only son into the world to perfectly image him, to perfectly obey him, and to redeem and give spiritual life to the image marred by the fall. And that is why we gather as God's people. And we are glad you are here among us. And that good news is why we sing thanksgiving and praises. It is why we pray. It is why we repent. And it is why we are urging you right now to do the same today. You have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But Jesus Christ was and is the perfect image of God, both physically and spiritually. And God laid all of the wrath and the judgment that is due to us for sin on His beloved Son, such that any and everyone who will repent of their sins, who will believe what God has said about their sin and about their guilt, and who will tell Him that they believe what He has said and that they are sorry for it, and will look to Christ and believe that He suffered for their sins, God has promised that they will be forgiven, justified. And you can be sure that God will honor what He has said because He proved that He has received the life and the death of Jesus Christ by raising Him from the grave. Friend, God has promised pardon and forgiveness for anyone who will do this, who will repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And we pray that you will do that today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you may wonder whether or not the image of God is still marred in you, having been born again, a new creation. The answer to that question is yes. You still have remaining corruptions in your flesh this morning, which is why you will all die like me. You have been given spiritual life, and the Holy Spirit is renewing that day by day, conforming you into the perfect image bearer. You have a new heart, new desires, a new love for God's law. But beloved, our glorious hope, the good news for us is that upon our death, the death of the remaining corruptions of this flesh, or upon the return of Christ, God has told us that when we see him, we will be like him. What has been sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What was sown in corruption will be raised incorruptible. Beloved, this is glorious news that when you behold the face of your Savior, that beatific vision either in death or at His return, you will be made perfect in holiness. Not just in soul, but in body as well. No more sins that so easily entangle you. No more death for the wages of your sins. Only eternal life and glory purchased for you by our Savior. So, beloved, our hope 
is not in an image that we can create for ourselves here on earth, whether through our jobs or our families or by all the likes we can accumulate on social media, but our hope is found in being united by faith to that perfect image bearer. And so as we get ready to enter into a time of prayer and reflection after considering the first half of the sixth day of creation, I want us to begin or end where we began. Beloved, as God's image bears, new new creations, new creatures in Christ, we must not give ourselves in this old creation to imaging the fallen man, the flesh. But we have the responsibility and the privilege of imaging the man of the new creation. And so what if today, at noon, the skies started turning gray, and by this evening they were so dark that it was like being in the House of Representatives in Hartford, Connecticut in 1780? Beloved, would you be fearful of your master's return? If you had been there in 1780, would you have felt the need to adjourn from your duty in the common kingdom because you had not been doing that duty in a manner worthy of your status as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom? Brothers and sisters, our Savior has told us to be watchful, to be ready, to be diligent in serving him because we do not know the day or hour of his return. And so if you have found yourself being lazy or neglectful in your duty to image the man of heaven and to labor in this world in light of the one to come, I pray that today your zeal will be renewed and your intentionality in following him will be renewed. And finally, unbelievers among us, we plead with you one last time today as precious image bearers of God to hear the good news of how you can be united to Christ, the perfect image bearer. And being so united, you would find refuge and safety from the wrath and judgment and justice that is going to come upon the earth and is going to come upon all unsaved image bearers in the end. Friend, it has been appointed to you once to die, and after that, the judgment. So I plead with you to heed my words on this side of death's door before your life is unexpectedly snatched away from you at an hour that you did not expect it, and then it is eternally too late. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that we do not have to muster up our activities in this world. We don't have to perform to a degree to excel beyond others to find our worth and dignity and value. 
but that we have all of those things because you have made us in your image. And we share those. We share those things with our fellow image bearers. Thank you, Father, for the way in which you have formed that and created that and instilled that into the fabric of your creation such that you have restrained much evil in the history of mankind because of that truth. And Father, I ask that you would help us as your people gathered together here on your son's day to worship him, to be ministered to by him and by his spirit. I ask that you would take these truths of your word and that you would plant them down deep in us. And that your word, as you have promised in it, as it goes forth and accomplishes the purpose for which you send it, I ask, as your under-shepherd over these people, that you would use it for mercy's sake. Oh, Father, you have promised to gather us as your little children and to help us. You have told us that you remember that we are fragile and that we are but dust and that our life is but a vapor and that you will see to it that we will persevere to the end and you will conform us to the image of your Son and that you are at work in us, that we would will and work according to your good pleasure. And fathers, we look at our lives. Sometimes we struggle to see it. The remaining corruptions of our flesh at at times loom large in our minds. But we are a people of faith, not of sight. And so we believe that though this outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Help us, Father, to be accurate images of the man of heaven in this old creation as it wastes away. Help us to labor faithfully in our generation so that 10,000 years from now we will not be ashamed of how we lived. Help us as you instruct us in 1 Corinthians 3 through the Apostle Paul to, to build on the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets, not with wood, hay, and straw, things that can be burnt up, but with precious things. Precious, tested, and tried metals. First fruits, not leftovers. Father, renew our zeal. Renew our affections for you, for your worship. Do this work among your people by your Spirit. Father, we are laboring in your house, but we know that if you do not build it, we labor in vain. And so we plead with you, based on what your Son promised, that He 
would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We plead with you, Father, to do wonderful things for the glory of your great name, for the good of your people, and for the continuation of our King's labor to seek and to save that which is lost. It's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.